0: Welcome, welcome. We are continuing in our series, and if you have your Bible on, let's turn to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. And the name of this series is If. If. If we ought to be known by our love. And so we've, we've talked about, all the way since John chapter 1, this idea, um, in First in, uh, John chapter 1, he talks about this idea that if, that what we have seen, what we have heard, what we have beheld, we now declare to you that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father, that we talk about this idea that God has called, through Christ has called you and I to be known for our love for one another. John 13 tells us that the world will know you're my disciples because of your love, your love for one another. And so we, we we talk about this, and we talk about how how can we remain? How can if we are to be known by our love, that our fellowship must be built on truth. Our fellowship must be built on some foundational principles that is going to sustain us, that's going to allow us to abide. And so last week basically we got a chance to talk through um first john chapter 2 and we looked at 15 to 29 and in just chapter 2 alone that we see this word abide in what the csb translates the word remain often so many times over 20 times that we see in this chapter just that that word constantly remain that this is not about a one-time thing that you did at a christian camp 20 30 years ago but this is about a walking relationship that you have with the Father, that you're walking in step, that you're walking in line with Him, that there's this constant fellowship, this constant um, relationship that we have. And so when we're talking about today, what we're talking about is um, walking with God. We're talking about a fellowship with God, that we understand that our relationship with God is by faith alone, through, through grace alone, through Christ alone. But when we talk about this idea of walking with Him, how do we, hold on how do we walk in light of our lord so if we're to be known by our love we must walk with him all right there's this um, book max lucato is a, um he's a a pastor a former pastor who wrote this book in the grip of grace and at the beginning of his book he creates this great metaphor this great analogy that talks about um a king who lived in a castle with his five sons and this father of the, of his five sons and i want to read a little excerpt of this parable and they call it the parable of the river and i think this illustrates kind of how oftentimes we attempt to walk with god he says this he says once there were five sons who lived in a mountain castle with their father. The eldest brother was an obedient son, but his four younger brothers were rebellious. Their father had warned them of the river, but they had not listened. Each day, the four rebellious brothers ventured closer and closer to the river until one son dared to reach, reach in and fill the waters. He said, hold my hand so I won't fall in. And his brothers did so. But when he touched the water, the current yanked him in and the other three into the rapids and rolled them down the river. The waters finally dumped them on the bank in a strange land, in a distant country, in a barren place. Though they did not know where they were, of one fact they were sure of, they were not intended for this place. For a long time, the four young sons lay on the bank, stunned at their fall and not knowing where to turn. But with the passage of time, the sons learned to survive in the strange land. They found nuts for food and killed animals for skins. They determined not to forget their homeland nor abandon hopes of returning. Each day they sat about the task of finding food and building shelter. Each evening they built a fire and told stories of their father and older brother. All four four sons longed to see them again. Then one night one brother failed to come back to the fire. The others found him the next morning in the valley with the savages. He was building a hut of grass and mud and he says, I've grown tired of all talks, he told them. What good does it What good does it do to remember? Besides, this land isn't so bad. I will build a great house and settle here. And so the other three left their hut building brother and walked away. They confirmed to to meet around the fire, speaking of home and dreaming of their return. Some days later, a second brother failed to appear at the campfire. The next morning, his siblings found him on a hillside staring at the hut of his brother. How disgusting, he told them as they approached. Our brother is an utter failure, an insult to our family name. Can you imagine a more despicable deed? Building a hut and forgetting about our father? I'll keep an eye on the brother. Someone needs to keep a record of his wrongs to show the father. And so the two returned, leaving one brother building and the other judging. The remaining two sons stayed near the fire, encouraging each other, speaking of home. Then one morning, the youngest son awoke to find himself alone. He searched for his brother and found him near the river, stacking rocks. It's no use, the the rock-stacking brother explained as he worked. Father won't come for me. I must go to him. I offended him. I insulted him. I failed him. There is only one option. I will build a path back up the river and walk into my father's presence. Rock upon rock, I will stack until I have enough rocks to travel upstream to the castle. And when he sees how hard I've worked and how diligent I've been, he will have no choice but to open the door and let me into his house. The last brother did not know what to say. And so he returned to sit by the fire alone. Let me ask you a question, an important question that we all have to ask. As you hear and you listen to the different brothers, what brother best describes you? What brother best describes you? What, best, what brother best describes your walk with Jesus? Are you the pleasure seeking brother? What we talk about the hedonist? Or are you the judgmental brother, the, the, the judge, that you sit and you keep all the records of all the wrong that everybody else is doing? Are you the legalist, trying to earn your way back into the Father's presence? You see, although each one of them took a different approach, they all chose the same path. They were all occupied with self at the exclusion of their father. See, today we're gonna to talk about a couple of ways to live. And really what this, the author tells us in the book of 1 John it is it simply tells us this idea that we have two paths to choose, two places to place our trust. We either have the way of the Lord or the way of the world and all and as we we recognize in both the three brothers we all recognize that they all chose the same path and although we saw this we see that oftentimes we don't see ourselves in this story you see in psalm chapter one jenny read it a little bit earlier she read a verse that we see all throughout the bible that's reminding us of these two paths in psalm chapter one it says blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in this law, he meditates day and night. He will be planted by the streams of river, by the streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and it, whatever it does, he prosper. But then he says, but the wicked, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. And we see this theme all throughout the scriptures, that there's two ways and this is the same way that we see that we have seen this case that has been built all the way in the book of first john that there's the way of the antichrist and there's the way of Christ there's the way that we come together that Christ in the person and work of Christ who brings us together and there's the way of the antichrist who divides and this is the reason why Jesus says that the world will know that you are my love because of your love for one another because it's something that's powerful in the gospel that tears down the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile, between slave and free, between rich and poor, between Democrat and Republican, it, that the way of Christ comes together and we see that we lift up something higher. there's something more important than the things that divide us. And so today we pick up in First John chapter one, verses two, 28. And basically, um, John gives us this hinge verse. He says in verse 28 of chapter two, he says, so now, little children, remain in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him as at his coming. And so, right here, we are to see this as what we call a hinge verse. Verse 28 is the theme verse that really is going to lay the foundation all the way from here to verse 19, or to chapter four, verse 19. This concept of remaining in Him, or this idea of abiding, and this, set the, this sets the agenda for what we're going to look at today as we look at chapters three, one through ten this concept of remain. What do we mean by remain? What do we mean? What do we recognize? See, the reality is, is that if we are to be known by our love, the, one of the understanding that, foundational principles that our fellowship must remain in the Father's love. This word, the remain or abide, simply means this. To abide is a moment by moment desperation and dependence upon Christ to supply what we need to do what he commands. Let me say that again. To abide is simply this, it's a moment by moment, it's not a one-time event, it's a moment by moment, desperation and dependence upon Christ to supply what we need to do what He commands. And this is why oftentimes we recognize, and you hear, you've heard me say the statement that it's not the works of the flesh that gets us to Christian, to the Christian life. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It's not even the work of the fruit, or the work of these days. We don't gird our, our, our strength up to try to love more. We remain, we abide, and out of the remaining, and out of the abiding, out of this desperation, we produce fruit that fruit is a product of remaining. Right. And so we recognize this idea to abide. And, and in that, basically we see this book end right here that if we abide, it says we will have confidence. In this book end that when he returns, we see it here in chapter 228, and then you see it again in 417, that we will have confidence. That is something about remaining in Him that gives us confidence. It's not how well we do. It's not how well we've performed. It's about trusting in Him, right? Because it's something about the Father's love that we are to put our confidence, that we are to rest, that we are to abide in. And this is really important for us as we look at this verse. And this verse, as I said already, is, is, is meant to be a hinge verse, or the word that they, um, some people use is called, it's the Janus verse. And see, the Janus verse is, comes from the old kind of Roman myth- mythology, that it was this two-faced kind of God, but what it, what, and he, stood at the, uh, he stood at the gate, and he both looked backwards and he also looked forward. It's where we get the, where we get the word January that January is a natural month in the year where we look back and we reflect on the past year, but we also look forward to the future. And here this verse sets the stage for us to remind us of the over 20 times that was mentioned that we are called to abide. But even though there was a calling to abide, there wasn't just simply a a know-how or the how we are to abide. And so from this point, kind of through chapter four, he begins to show us how we both abide in the presence of our Father, but also abide with one another. And so there's both a look back, but there's also a look forward. This idea that, that, that we are to walk with God in fellowship, in common union with Him, so that when He returns, that we are not be put ashamed, but we have confidence. We have confidence. You see that word abide or remain, is this from the Greek word minnow, which basically means that we have to allow God to take ownership. We allow him to take ownership. You see, if you were to go into an apartment complex, some of us live in apartments and some of us kind of live in in, in homes, but when we go into an apartment complex, when you go in, there's certain leeway that that the owner may give you. They may allow you to paint, they obviously allow you to move furniture and to change things around, but you can't knock down walls. Because when you're you're living in someone else's house or the owner's, uh, someone else's house that is owned by someone else, we, we recognize that there's a certain limit that we have to kind of do it, to making it our own. You see, but when it talks about this idea of allow God to take ownership or to abide or to remain, he's saying that we need to allow God to take ownership. You see, and it is in the ownership that we recognize that anybody has done any type of renovation in their house that oftentimes things look a lot messier before they look better. But we're able to knock down walls. We're able to move things. We're able to do because we have created ownership. And so when he is referring to this, he is saying, allow God through his spirit and his word to take ownership. You see, and it's in this verse that us that to allow us to know what it means to take ownership for us. And what he does is that, is that he says that when we, take, when we allow God to take ownership, we begin to look like the owner. Our house begins to look like the preferences that the owner. So if you were to come to my house or any house that I've owned, that you would see probably more of a modern type look. Why? Because I have certain preferences, that it is a certain way, there's a certain look, there's a certain feel that you would be able to go. And then if you went to a house that was real crowded and junky and had a lot of things, you would say, no, this is not Dahadi's house. Because there are certain characteristics that we recognize. And you see, and this is what he talks about in verse 29. He says this, he says, if you know that he is righteous, You know this as well. Everyone who does what is right is born of him. You see, he starts off with this idea that there's there's a certain thing that that there's there's this renovation process that he talks about being born again, that God has created. He has birthed us in his birthing process that we begin to look like our father who is in heaven. You see, I just celebrated a birthday um, this past week. Um, and in that birthday, one of my daughters, she put up, like, she went and my wife went and put up different pictures of me all the way from the beginning to the end. And, you know, and some of the pictures had my dad in it. And, and one of the things that people see is that the older that I get, the more and more I look like my father. And they say, oh yeah, that's Reggie's kid. They know. It's because I begin, and my characteristics, no matter how hard I said I was gonna be not gonna be, I begin to do. Subdu- the things. I begin to look, I begin to walk, and there's this certain thing that happens. And see, and what we recognize is that our identity drives our activity. It's who we are that begins to form and to drive what we do. You see, and so as John comes in and as he says, as he talks about, calls us to remain in him, to abide in him, and as he says, when you abide, when you allow God to take ownership, you will begin to look like him. You will begin to have the preferences like him. That there will be this idea that he says, "Let let me now shift that focus to understanding why. And in these verses, what I wanna do here is that I want, because there's five different points in here, but there's really one central point. That's, that's important for us to take away. And the reason why I recognize that is because in that, we, we recognize the, the thing called a chiastic structure. A chiastic, a chiastic structure. It's a fancy word, but let me just explain a little bit to you. You see, a chiastic, a chiastic structure is a structure that helps us, and it's a way that, um, especially in those days, help them to memorize things. They put things and they lay things out in a certain way so that they can remember. So memorization, but they also did it in a certain way so that they can get the point. So if you go back, go back the slide and just show the A, B, C. So a chiastic structure here. The A, B, C. Did you do that one? Not that no, one. No. Go back. You don't have it. All right. So. Go back to the Kaiser. So in here, basically what we see, that he gives us basically five ways to remain. Five ways to remain. And so when you recognize this is that it says there's a pattern, A, B, C, and then B, A. And if you recognize the first one is, is it talks about appreciating the Father's love, and the last one talks about allowing love to be victorious. Right Where the middle two talks about anticipating the son's return, where the the bottom one talks about accepting the work of Christ. And so in each one, but in the chiastic structure, basically these points are to drive us to the point right here. And the point here that we're gonna see in the text is that middle point, is that ultimately, it's as we remember and reflect on appreciating the work of the Father, or God, the Father's love. And then the second point um, of um, anticipating the return of the Son, that we begin, that there's this seed, there's this thing that begins, that, that the enemy comes in the other way, the deceiver comes and lays seas of doubt to what God has called us to remember. But then it comes back and tells us, no, but in that our response is to return, is to trust Christ in his work and allow God and allow love to be victorious and so this is the five points of the sermon but it leads us to one point these five ways for us to remain are critical for us in that why why is it important what we see is in John chapter 15, verse 7, it says that if you remain, or the word is abide, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. You see, in here, basically, he's saying that if you remain in me, right, we ought to remain in me and then my words remain in you. How do we remain? in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's through His words, it's through the sword of the Spirit that we remind. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God. That we go to battle with hiding the Word of God in our hearts and using the, the, the sword of the Spirit that reminds us of, to remain in the Father's love. You see, we've sung so many songs today, that you're good, that you're good, we, you hold it all together? You see, and it's in, this, in, in these songs that we, I believe that we come and we do spiritual warfare. Because I know that in a room this size and people online that we recognize that even in the midst of singing that God is good, that as we reflect on our current state, our current life, that we recognize that I, I don't I don't feel his goodness. I don't see. And it's in that warfare, it's in that that we begin to wrestle, and and it's in that we begin to question the Father's love. And so we go back to his word, and so in here we see this, that point. It says that we need to first appreciate the Father's love. What we see is this, verse 1, see what great love the Father has given us. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and indeed we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see, John uses this word love more than any other New Testament writer, right? We see this, and even in First John, he mentions it 46 times, right? And in, the, and in his Gospel, in, John chapter, in the Gospel of John, he mentions it 44 times, he uses it more. And he uses this word to, uh, to allow us to reflect, to see, The love of God. And what I love is the usage of the word because he says, see what great love the Father has for us. You see, it's in this time that we recognize that, that, that oftentimes that there are seeds of doubt that can come in that begins to question whether or not God loves us. That God sees us because of the darkness, the darkness of times, because of the the season that we're in that we begin to question. And what what John is referring to these believers um, in this time that he is saying, listen, no, remind one another of God's love, that God is still alive and active because it's in your reminder and it's in your testimony and it's in your testifying that you remind yourself but you also are, are able to remind others in a season, in a time that we have lost hope, that we can hold on to the fact that God is still alive and active and while I can't see it in my own life, I can see it in the life of others. I can see that they turned his life around because I remember where they were and I can see where they are now and it will give me hope. It's like going to the therapist that, that tells you, I've seen this before, that we're in our darkest depths our deepest sorrow is like, I know the way out and I can help you. You see, it's in this that John reminds us that when in those times when we begin to question the Father's love, that we ought to be reminded. And so my question is simply this. How, how many of us are questioning God's love right now in this moment? how many of us are questioning, like, we're serious. We're not, we're not talking about just kind of silver lining things. We're talking about we're, we're seriously wrestling with whether God sees us, where he truly loves us. Is, does he really have our best for us? And he tells us no. He says, I want you to remind one another. And so what I wanna do really quick, and I only wanna take about three minutes, because we can just sit and intellectually go through this, but I think, I want us to turn to our neighbor And if you're online, somebody that's not your spouse or a loved one, or you're gonna come with this, just talk to one another. And I want you just to remind one another, just a minute each. When was the last time you were reminded of God's love in your life? When was the last time you were reminded of God's love? So let's just take three minutes. Just turn to one another and just (laughs) share. Right. I, know, I know I didn't give you enough time. I know I didn't give you enough time. And if you're online, hopefully you was able to chat online to encourage one another. But sometimes I think it's important for us to remind one another of just the goodness of God, to testify, to just talk about how God, and and, and it's good for our souls to just remind that that God is still alive and active. He's not some absentee landlord that kind of set up and got you all saved and everything and then kind of went on to others. He's still there, he's still present, he still wants you to know that I'm with you. And sometimes it's through the testimony of, like even drawing up the testimony within ourselves or hearing the testimony of others that it will begin to trigger the fact that God is good. You see, because too many of us, we begin to see God's love just simply as an end or as a means instead of an end. We think about God's love and we shape it based upon how well our life is going currently. And we begin to define God's love based upon if our life is pleasant right now or if our life is hard. And we miss the fact that no, God is, God's love is is love even in your hard circumstances and even in your high times, that he is still the God of love. And it's in that that we remind us. But it's not until, and this is what John Piper says, it's not until Christ becomes our treasure that we do not know what it is to be loved by God. We will not. He says, the world will not know because they're not children. And that's what the passage basically says is see what great love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And guess what? We are. We are children of God. And he says, and the reason why the world won't comprehend because they don't understand the agape love that the Father has for us, this unconditional love through heart and good, for hard and good times that he won't, they don't comprehend it. So he says, but this is the way that God has called us. And this is why it's our responsibility to constantly cultivate our heart to pursue God above all else. That's our primary task. Our heart is an idol factory. And it just keeps creating different idols that competes with the Lord. And we are just to constantly tear down those idols and constantly pursue Him above all else. You see, but many of us, we question God's love. And this is why I love how the Gospel of Matthew begins. After 40 years of silence, the first thing that God breaks his silence, he says, this is my son in which I'm well pleased. Before Jesus did any ministry, before he did anything good or bad, he's like, I I, I love him, my beloved son. You see, many of us are still being impacted because we still have the the father wounds of our earthly father. The desires of wanting our dad to say, I love you. And it's those wounds that we begin to transfer to the Father. And so it's in this that we're reminded, no, see how great the Father's love for us, that he sent his only begotten son. And as we look back at what he's done, we also look forward. And this is why in verse two, he says, dear friends, we are God's children now. Not later, but he says, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That if we are to abide or to remain in the Father's love, we must remember, appreciate better his love the father's love, but we also must anticipate the son's return. He's coming back. He's coming back. And you see it's in his return that he gives us hope. You see, and the hope that we have is not like about 50-50 chance, like today is like 30% chance of rain. That's not the hope. Colossians chapter one says this, that there's a hope that's been laid up for us in heaven. It's the type of hope that we have, like, when you as a child going in Christmas, that, like, you had a hope that, you was, that there was this expectation to receive the gifts that were already paid for. They were already bought. They were already under the tree. And as we enter in, it's this about waiting in expectation to receive the gift that's already been paid for. You see, Christ has already paid the penalty for us. He's already purchased us. He's already bought us with his blood. But it's in his return as he comes back that we're reminded that we ought to place our hope in him. But that leads us to the, the point of this passage, uh, or the, what, he, what he's trying to drive us, because it's in that. It's like, all right, daddy, all right, daddy, we understand that. Yes, we understand that God's love. I've, I've heard enough sermons about it. I recognize that his son is going to return and we ought to, to hope in that. But the problem is, is that the doubts that we have. You know, because as we ask the first two questions of whether we doubt the Father's love or whether or not we believe that Christ is really coming back, I know one of the things is that we all have doubts and that's what the third one is, is that we need to avoid the deception of false teachers. We have to avoid the deceptions of false teachers, And see, this is where the passage takes a turn. This is the point in the chiastic structure that we go and we begin to, to create the point of what this is. Is up until this point, it's about remembering, it's about reflecting. Now it's about avoiding. When we recognize this, it says in verse 4, everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that when, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or know him. Right here, what we see is that the the, the doubts that begin to creep in, and he brings this idea of kind of the the deceiver. That if we recognize all the way from the beginning, it's the deceiver that began to put, put in seeds of doubt. And it was the deceiver that began to cause separation between, that we recognize that the impact of sin is that the impact of sin is not just simply feeling the guilt of breaking a moral law, the impact of sin is a division of relationship, and that when sin entered into the world, that's where we began to see the split, the fractured relationship between God and man, and between man and woman, that sin is a violation of relationship, and it's what's caused, it's the very essence that caused division and fellowship that we have. So when we see that sin is not simply breaking a moral code, it's a violation of relationship, we recognize that embracing the sin is living a life of lawlessness. It's like saying that, hey, we're gonna get married, but at, you know, Angie and I were married, but we're, not, we're gonna be married with no rules. We can see whoever we want, sleep with whoever we want, come back at whenever we want, do whatever we want. You see, we recognize, we all know that that type of marriage will not work. That type of covenant will not remain. And so that there's boundaries that we have in order to guard the protection of relationship. But what the enemy does is that he turns, living with God, a a list of rules rather than trying to maintain an abiding relationship. And this is where we get religion. It's about earning. It's about meriting. It's about getting, right? And that's when sin becomes deceptive. It begins to sneak in and begins to create those seeds of doubt and that's what the enemy, the father of lies the, the devil, was doing from the beginning. He says, Did God really say right did God really say that you see it's in this it's in this lies that God that we recognize that we that we have to recognize that the enemy's good at lying. you see too many of us think that like we're looking for the devil and kind of the you know the the red suit with the tail and like, it's like he's gonna, we can see him from a mile away. No, no that's not the way the enemy does. He, he's the father of lies. He's become good at it, he's better. He's gotten better over and over in the year. And so this is what we see, that he appeals to rule following rather than relationship building. We see that he appeals to temporary pleasures rather than long-term satisfaction. He appeals to the desires of the flesh rather than the fruit of the spirit. You see, he begins to appeal because he recognizes that you and I are all functioning legalists. We all wanna earn our love, God's love. I I can prove to you, God, that I'm worthy to be loved because we're still trying to earn the love of others and we don't understand the unconditional love of God. And so what John does here, he says that we need to avoid the deception of these false teachers. He says in verse seven, he says, "'Little children, let no one deceive you. "'The one who does what is right is righteous, "'just as he is righteous. "'The one who commits sin is of the devil, "'for the devil has sinned from the beginning.'" He brings back up the the memory, but he recognizes that the point is that we also need to recognize that our sin disrupts fellowship with God and with one another. It disrupts it. It disrupts the fellowship And it's in that that we recognize that we constantly come back to Christ. Because in here that what we see multiple times, that in verse 4 and 5, it says, everyone who commits sins practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. It's a relationship without no rules. It's acting without any restraint. But then he says, but you know that he, referring to Christ, was revealed so that he may take away sin." and there is no sin in him. He who knew no sin became sin for us that he might take away the sin and return us back into that word. Now you keep hearing that word righteous. Too many times we hear about righteousness or righteous and we just think about just correct living. But the idea of righteous means right standing. It means to be a right relationship with God. That there is a right relationship with God, that there is a justice component, but there is also a relationship component. That we know that any healthy relationship has healthy boundaries that's in it, so that we can properly relate to one another. And so he he begins to say that he is righteous, he's in, he is constantly in right standing. It is you and I that are like sheep, that are like sheep, that we go astray, that we leave him. So he calls us back to stop being deceived. And he recognizes the only way that we are not to be deceived deceived is by accepting the cleansing work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. That's the only way that we can overcome the disruption of our fellowship. He says the Son of God, in verse eight, end of verse eight, was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. I'm going to read that again, the second part of verse 8. The Son of God, referring to Jesus, was revealed for this purpose. Why? To destroy the devil's work. In context, what's the devil's work? To bring division in the body. That's the devil's work, to bring division between us and God, to break fellowship, to break communion. And, I, and he'll do whatever it takes. To disrupt that communion with him. And the only way we overcome that disruption is by the work of Christ. And what I love about this passage is that in, in really first John he doesn't kind of call us to try to live a life of perfection. What he's calling us is to fight with all of our with all of our being against isolation. You see too many of us try to live perfect. You see but he already cleared that up in first John chapter 1 6 where he says, he already said, listen, he who says he has no sin is a lie do not practice the truth. He who says who's kind of walking with God, but is walking in darkness, he makes God a lie. But he says, but what are we to do? He says, he says, we are going to sin, but what do we do with our sin? If you confess, he is faithful and just. You see, the problem is, is that there's going to be imperfection in any relationship that I get in because I'm in it. There's going to be imperfection, and there's going to be sin in that relationship. So how do we walk in communion with one another? It's by being quick to confess. And it's in our confession that that our lives become marked with repentance. That we begin to change the way we see ourselves and we see God that we, sh- we grow in the grace of the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and we recognize that the reason why that he came was to end the disruption, the permanent disruption, the permanent separation that we have. And this is why in verse nine he says, everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he is born of God. And let me just clarify. This is a verse that's about fellowship, not relationship. This is important for us to know because we have already clarified in the first chapter and even in the beginning of chapter two that there is going to be sin. But it's, and we recognize that of those who are born again believers in Jesus Christ that have been born, you can't be unborn. You've been born again. And there there, there are periods in people's lives that you can be in sin, habitual sin. And you you have the others around you to remind you and the spirit within you to remind you that you're not lining up, you're not currently in right fellowship with God. And in the same way that there's times with my children that me and my children are not seeing eye to eye, but it doesn't make them any less my son or any less my daughters. It just means that currently our relationship, and there may be even times that there's patterns that are taking place, but we are constantly to remind ourselves that you're not walking in line with the gospel. We're talking about fellowship. We're talking about fellowship. And this is why it's so important for us, and I'll end with this. This is why we have to allow love, allow love to be victorious. If we keep allowing the world Are the enemy to throw in seeds of doubt that God really loves us, or that he's ever really coming back for us. It's those seeds of doubts that will put us in the position of what we read in Max Lucado's book. You see, at the end of the book, or at the end of that parable, the elder brother, he ended up coming back. And he represented the path of the way back home. And as the youngest brother went to tell all the other brothers that the eldest brother is here to take us back home to see father, he went to the pleasure seeker, and, but the pleasure seeker was caught up in the ways of the world. He went to the judge, but he was so caught up in judging. He went to the legalists, but he was caught up in trying to earn it. He wasn't willing to do what the youngest son was willing to do, to trust and believe that the only way back is through the elder brother. You see, Jesus came, and he's the only way, he's the only truth, he's the only life. Not just for our justification, but for our sanctification and our ultimate glorification, that he is the only way, he is the only truth. And just as we have received Christ, we are to walk in him. And we have to continue to push down that functional legalist in us that pleasureist in us, that judgmentalist in us. And we gotta confess because those things keeps us from fellowship with our Father. So instead of a pleasure-seeking, judging, or legalistic, we gotta allow love to be victorious. And this chapter, verse 10 says this, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God. Especially the one who does not, and there's that word, love. Love. But it doesn't talk about loving God. It says love their brother and sister. We are able to love because he first loved us. That we become a dim reflection and a a reminder of the love of God. So my prayer blueprint is this, is that we will receive the Father's love. And in receiving the Father's love, that we will push down the works of the flesh and the deception of the enemy that causes division in our body. And we would return and trust the only way, the truth, the light that brings us back to the Father is the personal work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that we would trust we would be like the younger brother, not depending on our strength, but depending upon his strength to carry us back home to, where, to the place that we've been made for. Let's pray. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information about Blueprint Church, visit us online at blueprintchurch.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Blueprint Church. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.